I'm sitting with Liam Denny. Liam is one of the producers of How in God's Name Should I Vote? What do I mean by the term producer? Well, it means that Liam gets to do all the really hard work. I sit here and I get to chat with all these amazing people and their amazing ideas, and Liam does all the really hard work of making it all fit together. Anyway, Liam, you spent some time with John Dixon, and John's on the record around how Christians should posture themselves publicly. What did he have to say about that? Yeah, it was great to chat with John. He had lots of good things to say. Uh, One of the big points he made was that we need to know our place in society as the church, as Christians, Mm. Uh, and that role is changing. We used to have a dominant, powerful voice, but that's not how it is at the moment. We're actually guests at the dinner table uh, that we don't host any longer. And that has a lot to say about the way we should relate to voting and politics and just the political rhetoric. Uh, Those comments he made were fascinating and, and well worth hearing. Okay, so let's move on to the political bit. How does that all translate into the political realm? Yes, well, of course, we're thinking about how how we use our vote, and John had lots to say about that, especially how we should be using our vote for the benefit of others. Uh, And not voting tribalistically what's best for my tribe. Uh, he, He makes a great point about, you know, a Christian small business owner, the world will be telling them to vote what's best for small business, but actually we should be thinking about what's best for others. Uh, and that's a, it's a hard mindset to break, but one that John says is, is definitely worth doing. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Liam. We hope that you enjoy our interview with John Dixon. As the founder of the Centre for Public Christianity, you obviously have a passion for Christianity being in the public square. Why do you see a need for that? What prompted you to to get into this space in the first place? Really, because the impression a lot of Australians have about the Christian faith is pretty negative, or there's no impression. So increasingly, Australians have no direct personal contact, so far as they know, with a genuine Christian. And researchers found that this is the case. More, more than half Australians don't, or say they don't, know a sincere Christian. So what that means is that perception of the church and Christianity is filled in by the media. And that's not always awesome. <laughs> so we, when we uh, founded the Centre for Public Christianity, just felt there was a need to jump into that space and be part of the public conversation about Christianity, to leave most Australians, you know, who don't bump into Christians or church very often, with another impression to consider that Christianity can be thoughtful, it can be generous, it can be cheerful, it doesn't have to be grumpy or self-righteous. And so um, that's what the centre has been doing, and my 10 years with them, uh, you know, was just absolutely fantastic. If that's the case for the media and the, and the perception that people have of Christianity in the media, what about politics? How should Christians be engaged in politics? Should we even do that at all? Is there a place for, for Christianity and, and politics? Is that something you've been interested in? Well, it depends what you mean, of course. By definition, if you live in a democracy, you, you, you're going to be involved in politics as a citizen because we get to vote and we get to you know hold opinions about political issues, uh, policies, and so on. And that whole word group, you know, politic, policy, polite, these all come from the Greek word politio, which was the, the ancient word used, and it's used in the New Testament, for living as a citizen. The interesting thing, though, is where you get it in the New Testament, uh, usually, it's kind of a, a counter-politic 
because it um, it's used to mean live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom as you go about your business in the world, which is a way of saying, you know, ultimately our allegiance is to Christ, not to any particular political party or agenda. So the church needs to be really careful as it's involved in politics, not to think it's able to call the shots, not to think that we run the show or even sound like we run the show. I mean, I'm pretty sure most Christians you know, don't actually think it's their right to run Australia. But sometimes we can sound like we think that. Uh, we don't intend to, but that's often how it comes across to people. And when Australians feel that the church is telling people what to think, what to do, what to believe, they're really put off. So it's mixed, you know. We've got to jump into the conversations, try and persuade people about what is good, but never come across as a bully, as uh, someone running the show. So you're saying we, we should know our place in the political sphere and, and not try and overstep? Yeah, the way I like to think of it is there, there are kind of two models. Maybe there are more models, but the two that I want to sort of tease out are the prophetic model, which you often hear people, uh, Christians, talk about, where, you know, the church's role is like a prophet in ancient Israel, like Isaiah or Amos or Jeremiah or whatever. And our role is to be the prophet to the nation and tell the nation what to do to proclaim the good with a kind of moral authority that you do find in the prophets, right? The problem with that is the prophets were speaking to Israel and they were actually prophets of Israel. They did have moral authority over Israel. They didn't for a second think they had moral authority over, you know, Egypt down the road uh, or, or Babylon or whatever. And even when they do speak of Babylon and Egypt, it's not because they think Babylon and Egypt are ever going to hear their message. It's usually just to reassure uh, God's own people that God has everything in hand and will bring justice and so on. So the prophetic model is one that a lot of Christians think is is the right model. And I just think it's wrong. I frankly think it's wrong. It, it's to miss the fact that we are not in ancient Israel anymore. The church is not the prophet to Australian society in the way that Jeremiah was the prophet to Israel. That's to completely miss the situation. We are, this is the other model, uh, dinner guests at someone else's dinner party. You know, imagine, you know, your neighbor puts on a dinner party, invites you over, beautiful spread. We well, don't go there, you know, acting like you're the host like you own the meal, you own the house, you own the table, that you can tell people what to do. You go thrilled, excited, cheerful that you're a dinner guest and you act like a good guest and hopefully you get an invitation back. Obviously, you share your opinion, you try and persuade the table, but in the end, you want to be a good guest, not the host, not the prophet. Oh, that's a really helpful way to think about it. Thank you. Before we dive more into politics and what it means for Christians. Uh, let's go back and think about our role model, our perfect role model in Jesus. And you've done a lot of work on the historical Jesus. Uh, can I just ask simply, was Jesus political? <laughs> yes, in the ultimate sense. No, in the uh, in the sense that uh, we're perhaps <laughs> trying to talk about. I mean, he, everything he said has a political overtone or implication because if he was really um, firm about, let's say, caring for the poor, then that is political in as much as Christians living in any society will want to think about what's best for the poor. His teaching is political at that level because anything that's ethical 
and involves treating other human beings in a society is political. But he wasn't political in the sense that he was trying to, you know, change political structures in Israel, let alone change political structures in Rome. And it's really, I won't say dangerous, I'll say it's precarious to risky to look at the Gospels, look at the historical Jesus, and then say, whatever he did, we can do, without thinking about what kind of context he lived in. And it was very different. There was no democracy in his day. Uh, He was, in a sense, a prophet to Israel. And yet he had a pretty amazing posture toward Rome. You think of his denunciation of the priests in Israel, compared with his almost polite conversation with Pontius Pilate. There's something really interesting about that. He acts like a prophet to Israel, just like Jeremiah or Isaiah did. But when he's speaking to a Gentile, to the pagan ruler of the land, there's a there's almost a politeness. Um, I, I find that very striking. And the reason I raise it is because I, I sometimes hear people saying, look what Jesus did in overturning the tables in the temple. And that's the kind of prophetic demonstration we should be giving in Australia. I just sort of say, hey, not so quick. That was Jesus as prophet speaking to Israel. That's not how the church acts in a pagan society. That's a long-winded way of saying everything Christian is political in the broad sense. But we need to be very careful about identifying with a particular political party, with uh, a particular political agenda, And we need to remind ourselves above everything else that Jesus was quite comfortable living under a secular pagan regime. You remember he was asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he held up a uh, silver denarius, a Roman coin. And he said, whose image is that? And they all said, it's Caesar's. And he's referring to Emperor Tiberius, who ruled at the time. And he said those famous statements, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give back to God what is God's. In other words, uh, you know, there are kind of two empires. You've got to be a good citizen to Caesar, but ultimately your allegiance to God is final. I guess that peaceful political interaction that Jesus was largely engaged with, is that a model for how we should be considering our political involvement? Well, you could move from there to the statements throughout the New Testament. If you just walk through all of the statements in the New Testament where the apostles urge Christians living in a pagan environment, in a non-Christian environment, how they should act and speak to the non-Christian world, it is very striking to me that you get statements like return insult with blessing. You hear stuff like let your conversation always be full of grace, or you get Give an answer to everyone, but always do this with gentleness and respect. Consistently in the New Testament, Christians are told when you're interacting with an unbelieving world, you don't speak with a moral authority over the world. You speak graciously. Uh, You speak to persuade and you do it cheerfully and lovingly. Yes, confidently, but also humbly. And sometimes you've got to lose and you smile sweetly and, um, and carry on. So I, I, would, I would move from Jesus to the whole New Testament and I'd be pretty firm 
that our demeanor in the political realm today, as we speak about issues and to our politicians and to our nation, it ought to be with gentleness and respect. Just thinking again about the things that Jesus was most concerned with in his life, what are the social and public issues that he raised and he thought he needed to speak to? What did he speak up or push back against? Well, ultimately, he called people to look to the kingdom of God, not to any particular kingdom. And that has to be primary. You know, we, we can't rush to look at you know any particular agenda that might help us think about politics today. So uh, I would say very firmly Jesus was on about the kingdom of God and that being the higher authority. And of course, the early Christians, the reason they were so comfortable living in a pagan world was because not because they were wimps, but it was because they thought the ultimate kingdom was God's kingdom and that in the end, God would bring justice, God would bring peace. And so they can act toward those things really gently in the world because ultimately they know God's kingdom will reign forever. Okay, so having said that, Obviously, Jesus was concerned about those in need. A huge part of his teaching is about uh, loving our neighbor, doing good to those who hate us, uh, caring for the poor, being merciful to those who are in need. Uh, These sorts of things are the outlook of the Christian in the world. And when you think politically, it seems to me the fundamental way of voting Christianly is a vote for other people. Unlike much of the political rhetoric and political expectation, Christians don't vote for my interest group. We vote for the good of the other. We use this precious gift of the democratic vote to um, help other people. So what that means is I don't think a Christian, say, small business owner should first be thinking about what vote will be best for small business or the you know the 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 metal worker who's a christian i don't think they should be first thinking what's best for the metal workers or for the trade unions uh, more generally i know that's how we're always told to to think and that's how the political rhetoric comes across it appeals to that vote for your own cohort mentality but um, we're called to put others first to honour one another above ourselves, to consider others better than ourselves. So I reckon whether you're a metal worker or a doctor or a small business owner, a Christian should be saying, who needs my vote most? You know, uh, who who's most in need of, of my using this powerful thing I've got called a democratic vote for their good? And And I really hope that that's how Christians will vote. Yeah, that's excellent. And we'll dive back into that in a second as we think about your trip overseas recently. But you've said before you believe Christians should be swinging voters. Why is that? (laughs) Uh, It's someone who is willing to vote one way or the other, depending on what the policies are. So a swinging voter is generally someone who just hasn't, you know, hasn't necessarily made up their mind in advance. I'm concerned that a lot of people just vote according to their tribe or the way they've always voted, or the way their family votes, or the way their suburb votes. And, you know, so it's a team-based approach. I vote for my team. And yet, it seems to me that a Christian needs to be more thoughtful than that. And that it may be that a political party's policies begin not to align with, you know, the the aspirations of a Christian, with, um, you know, the good of the nation. And I would like to think a liberal voting Christian listening to this would be really open to voting Labor if the policies 
demanded it. And of course, likewise, a consistent Labor voter should be willing to vote Liberal coalition um, if an analysis of the policies meant that the best I can do for this nation with my vote is to vote coalition. Uh, so that's what I mean by a swinging voter. I don't mean to criticise any Christians who are uh, members of parties, you know, because there are Christians who are Greens members, Labor members, coalition members, and there are politicians, of course, <laughs> who are who are uh, who are Christians, and they, they they have tied themselves to a party. But even in their situation, I like to think that if it came to a point where the policies of that political party started to really move away from what you think is the good, that you'd be willing to um, vote another way. So do you think there's no place for Christians then just voting for the Christian party or the Christian candidate or seeing that word Christian on their ballot paper and just ticking that box? That shouldn't be what we think? I love the idea of Christians going into politics and I'm totally cool with there being Christian parties. I don't think Christians should vote for their team, their religious team. Not only should they not vote for a political team that they just think is, is their tribe, they shouldn't They shouldn't vote religiously like that. I mean, the New Testament was perfectly comfortable with a pagan emperor and called on us to honor the emperor. That's a, that's a Roman emperor who didn't believe in God, who wasn't, who wasn't a Christian. So God can govern the nations without Christians in leadership because in the end, the gospel of Christ and the power of the Spirit in the church are the most important things to change a nation toward the good. Political power is secondary. And so I don't think we should be voting necessarily for Christian politicians just because they're Christians. If they happen to have policies that you think are really for the good of the other, then knock yourself out, vote for them. But don't vote simply because of the buzzword Christian. So you've said that we should be weighing up policies as our, as our way to consider voting. What do you think are the key policies, especially as we approach this year's election, that we should be keeping a, a careful ear out for? Oh, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I'm a little bit concerned that economic prosperity seems to be the, the, the buzzword or the buzz idea, and it has been for a long time, actually. But Christians shouldn't necessarily be voting for what you think is going to make us the most, uh, you know, the most prosperous nation, because we're already like third or fourth, depending on which measure you use, richest nation on earth. So do we really need even more prosperity? Now, naturally, someone could reply, oh, but, you know, I'm voting for more prosperity because I want those in need to be lifted out of their poverty. And I say, full marks, excellent. That's, that's a reason to vote for economic prosperity, because in that rationale, it isn't economic prosperity you're, you're voting for. It's the hope that those who have very little will be brought out of, uh, out of their poverty. And that's a great reason to vote for the party you think will, will help the nation prosper. But simply saying this will be better for our economy, this will allow our gross national income to be bigger, I think is, is nuts, for a Christian anyway. But in terms of what other policies, I just think we need to think through what is going to help the other? Who are the people who need my vote most? Now, for some, it may be indigenous 
policies. You, you may have a real heart for the Indigenous people. I hope, I hope every Christian does. And so therefore, you'll be thinking, which, which party is going to uh, have more assistance for our Indigenous Australians? And that will guide your, your vote. Others may think along the lines of um, international aid, um, Australian aid, you know, because that's taking some tiny sum of our uh, national wealth and giving it to the poorest of the poor on earth. For me, th th this is much on the mind at, mo at the moment because the needs around the earth are so great that I reckon any Christian in the third or fourth richest nation on earth should have as a top priority, maybe it won't be the, the top, but a top priority, how can we help those who are the poorest of the poor on the earth? Because we are not first Australians. We are first human beings made in the image of God, and we love all other human beings made in the image of God. And of course, this is on your heart, particularly at the moment following your recent trip to the Middle East. Can you just talk about the impact that had on you and your heart going over there and seeing this? You know, honestly, it's hard for me to uh, put it in precise words. I, I, you know, I've been back, I guess, six weeks now, maybe eight weeks, and I still haven't found the best words to put on it. It, 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 had, it had a big impact on me. So I went to um, Jordan to visit refugee camps on the border of Jordan and Syria. And then I went to Lebanon and uh, the same border camps for Syrian refugees and also uh, looking at urban services to help refugees out of poverty, to help them back into work, to help kids back into school and so on. Uh, trauma counselling, which of course a lot of Syrians need. And it was very confronting in a number of ways. Obviously, to see these people face to face puts, a, puts an emotional power to what I'd already rationally worked out was an important issue. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are like three million refugees on these borders and they are in a desperate situation and they want to go back to Syria, but conditions are not going to allow that for quite some time. They don't want to come to Australia, so they're stuck. They're in border camps or they're in tiny flats, living as a family in one room. I spent some time in one room, the one room this family has in Beirut. All nine of them live in one room. That's the size of the, my office, my home office that I'm talking to you at uh, from right now is the size of the room these nine people lived in. So it was like an emotional jolt for a rational thing I'd already known. And the other thing was I came away utterly impressed by the professionalism of our Australian aid. And so I visited actual Australian aid projects, um, projects where your and my tax dollars are being used to get kids back into school, to give kids $37 a month per person to survive on food. And I saw how professional the people are who are delivering this aid, the checks and balances that they have on the ground. If anyone's abusing the system, they're caught pretty easily now. I'm just so proud of that tiny portion of our uh, tax dollar that uh, that goes to people in you know desperate need. And, you know they did surveys um, it's a couple of years now uh, ago, and they asked Australians how much they think is being sent by our government to overseas aid. And people, I think, said something like ten percent, and they thought that was too much. And then when asked how much should it be, I think they said one percent right, of the national income should go to the poorest of the poor. But, you know, in fact, it's 0.22%. <laughs> so it's a fifth of what people think it should be 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, much, much less, uh, a 50th of what, uh, almost, of what um, people think it is. So 22 cents in every $100 of national income, just 22 cents, goes to help uh, people via Australian aid. So I'm really proud of that. I want to see it keep going. And I'd urge both sides uh, of politics to commit ourselves as good neighbours to the wider world, especially given we're third or fourth uh, richest nation on earth. I guess we back here at home see these images on our television screens. What can't we pick up as we look at those pictures from what it's actually like there on the ground? What's the one thing that, that you've taken back with you, a new perspective that you have? All we tend to see are the masses of people. But when you go there and you sit in a room with one family and hear their story, they're real human beings made in the image of God for whom Christ died. Uh, that's how much he loves them. And so just to be face-to-face, -face, the, these are my fellow human beings. That, that's, that's the impact it brings. But, it, but as I said a moment ago, it's also the professionalism of the aid. Uh, I have no fears anymore about quality and professionalism and efficiency of Australian aid. Let's just think finally about you as someone who spent now a decade in the public Christian, being the public Christian voice in an era where, you know, that's often anti-everything or it seems to be. Uh, what have you learned about how to effectively speak into the public space in, in the last 10 years? <laughs> I'd sum it up in, uh, in one sort of double expression. Uh, I'm more and more convinced that what the Lord would have of all of us who are Christians, but especially Christian leaders, is a cheerful confidence to jump into the fray on any issue and a cheerful humility to lose well if necessary. So I'm not saying we go around looking for you know opportunities to lose, but I think uh, we, we jump into every conversation with confidence and cheerfully, but we're going to get whacked around the head and we're going to lose debates and laws are going to be changed that, that are really frustrating and upsetting to us. But we should also be cheerful losers because no one in the world should be a better loser than a Christian because we believe in the one who died on a cross. And as he's dying, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we believe in the ultimate loser, if, if that's not a, a terrible thing to say, uh, because we also know that he rose again and humbly, cheerfully losing can actually lead to a great win. Uh, so I just urge Christians, jump into the conversation. And if you lose, please lose well, because the Lord can, uh, can bring a resurrection out of a death. Yeah, what a brilliant message. Uh, just one final reflection. Sanctity of life is often seen by Christians as the kind of the overarching issue that defines the Christian vote. But uh, you haven't mentioned that at all in this interview. Uh, any reason for that? Probably because you didn't ask me about moral <laughs> issues. Uh, because, uh, you know, I would happily say moral issues like abortion and same-sex marriage um, and euthanasia these will play on on a Christian's mind, and they should. I think they're incredibly important issues. And so I would say, yeah, that they are part of the mix in how you vote. And, you know, the interesting thing is sometimes Christians split apart what original Christianity or New Testament Christianity held together. That is the kind of left and right of the political spectrum. I often think that left and right are 
both heresies. That is, they are splitting apart what Jesus held together. So Jesus was absolutely committed to the uh, sanctity of life, the fundamental importance of family, sexual purity, and he was absolutely committed to uh, what we call social justice. He wouldn't have called it that. Just love of neighbor on a, on a grander scale. Christians, are sometimes they go, I'm just going to throw my lot in with one side of that equation when we've got to be trying to do both. And that makes it a really hard equation to tease out because you may find that one party is really pro-abortion and yet they're also really going to look after the poor. On the other hand, you may find a party is you know, totally against abortion and yet their asylum seeker policy is terrible. So Christians are going to be stuck and I don't have any solutions. I, I am honestly talking to you unsure how I'm going to cast my vote. And it's, and it's got a lot to do with the very question you just asked me. I guess that's that's proof it's not going to be easy no matter what happens, but we, uh, we do need to give it thought, time uh, and careful consideration. Absolutely. John, thank you very much for your time. Always great to talk with you guys. If you've enjoyed How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamwee.